working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to another episode of the podcast Working Drummer. Today is my interview with drummer Marshall Richardson. Originally from Memphis, Tennessee, Marshall moved to Nashville in 2000 after graduating from the University of North Texas with a BA in music. Marshall's worked with a diverse list of artists, ranging from country legends to root rockers that include Jody Messina, Lori Morgan, Webb Wilder, Bernie Leadon, Joe Nichols, and Johnny Reed. His career in Nashville is a balance of recording sessions and live local, national, and international performances. As always, you can go to workingdrummer.net where you can find out more about this podcast, see photographs, and find out more information about other podcasts we've done. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can go to iTunes and subscribe. I also want to encourage you to go to iTunes, rate and review our podcast. Any rating that you can do, any review is super helpful to us, so I appreciate that. This episode of Working Drummer Podcast is sponsored by OnlineDrummer.com. OnlineDrummer.com provides drummers of all ages and skill levels with the best educational resources, including videos, sheet music, ebooks, articles, Skype lessons, and more. OnlineDrummer.com puts all these tools at your fingertips to help you improve your playing. Working Drummer Podcast listeners can get a free download of the sheet music of your choice by visiting OnlineDrummer.com and entering the promo code WORKINGDRUMMER. No dots, no spaces. Again, go to OnlineDrummer.com and enter the promo code WORKINGDRUMMER. For one free download of the sheet music of your choice, get practice tips, build your chops, work out new styles, or learn your favorite song today at OnlineDrummer.com. So let's get to it. Here is Marshall Richardson. I had a best friend down the street, mm-hmm. was in starting in band, you know, middle school band. So he, actually, his, his dad was a songwriter, too, come to think of it. Um, he didn't live with his dad, but, um, so my friend Andy down the street got some drums and I'd go down to his house Mm -hmm. and play on his drums. He was a year older. Okay. And, uh, I can remember they would, he would go downstairs to eat dinner with his family and they'd leave me upstairs to play his drums Really, during dinner never complained. So I, I kind of got that. That was kind of the first bug. And he was a, he was a big musical influence too. He had an older brother, so we were getting to his brother's records, and Andy had records, and yeah, yeah. I'd play his drums. Nobody'd complain. Then I'd uh, then eventually I was in middle school band and got my little snare drum kit, and of course I was busy on that. And I remember um, asking, you know, you're growing up, you're asking for stuff. You know, can I have a go kart? No. Can yeah. I have a pony? No. Can I have a trampoline? No. <laughs> And then I asked my dad, can I have a drum set? And they said yes. You're like the South Park writers. You like ask them for all these dangerous things, <laughs> yeah. knowing all yeah. you really wanted was a drum set. Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> I should have used that to my advantage more. But yeah, just uh, surprised me. But they, he said, oh, that sounds all right. And they got me a drum set. Wow. And then, so that's middle school band. And yeah, actually, I probably got the drum set possibly right before I started middle school band about the same time you know fifth grade and uh the drum set arrives and my dad opened the phone book and called the Memphis drum shop yeah 
to get me lessons. So you were, you were living in Memphis. Did you grow yep. up in Memphis? Grew in, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. right outside of Memphis. And uh, to my good fortune, the teacher at Memphis Drum Shop was our friend, Steve, Steve Eby. Eby. Yeah. <laughs> so 12-year-old me goes down to Memphis Drum Shop. Yeah. And Steve, that was... Uh, Steve would have been at Memphis State, University of Memphis now. Yeah. And... Um, the human radio thing was happening yeah. right about then. Okay. Check that band out if you don't know it. Right. And they're actually making a new record. Yeah. Um, so Steve was my rock star drum teacher. Yeah. You know, he had a band and was finishing up school. So he was a, well, if you know Steve, he's very methodical, yeah. to good teacher. He was a really great teacher, but also I could see, you know, what he was doing with his. Even at that time, yeah, yeah, yeah. because, uh, and you know, he's had his episode already, man. Yeah, yeah. Been on the show. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, but it's interesting because he's been doing it for so long. Yeah. And we talked briefly about the teaching, but to think that at that point, it it was very effective. He was an effective teacher for you. Oh yeah. And has played a huge part in every pretty that that call that my dad made to Memphis Drum Shop and. Yeah, got Steve, yeah. and then Steve has been kind of a pivotal part of many different chapters of me having a career. Really, you know, this, I I kind of knew that, um, but uh, not in any great detail. I think just from knowing you and knowing Steve. And, yeah. Uh, gosh, I've man, how long have we known each other? Uh, almost since I moved here. I think you and I got here at the same time, ninety nine. Okay. Yeah, summer ninety nine is yeah. when I got here. Yeah. Uh, and and we shared uh, uh, the practice the space. public storage. Oh yeah. my gosh! Uh, when I was living, didn't have the space. Neither of us had the yeah. space. So you and Steve and I mm-hmm. shared that space. And um, no, that that's crazy. But I I seem to know that, and it's interesting that for some, it's different for everybody. But to have that person that well in what other way so teacher well yeah and and it's really in hindsight when you add all the little things up it's not one big groundbreaking you know i'm really sticking my neck out for you although pretty much if you're recommending somebody for gigs you're sticking your neck out but um you know he was a teacher of mine from you know age 12 till probably sophomore junior year in high school Uh um so just being a good teacher and you know, I was in little bands along the way, and I got great advice from about those kind of things. Yeah. And then um, eventually, when I always uh, kept up with them, he he eventually, of course, came to Nashville. Yeah. And um, when I went off to college, um, I kept in touch with them. You know, once or twice a year, probably, or I'd come through Nashville and and hang out with them a little bit, just trying to get my bearings on what what I'd need right to have a career in Nashville cuz I don't I don't recall ever considering going anywhere other than here. Yeah, and I don't remember I don't remember at one point I made a decision to come here but yeah. I just kind of knew if I was going to have make a living and have the kind of life I wanted to, have, you know, have a family and yeah. whatnot, it'd be Nashville. So um I was getting tips from Steve uh-huh. all throughout college about little things you know right here's how i make my charts and yeah you know all that stuff and uh then when i got to nashville of course um he you know at first it'd be like um i think some of the first things were like 
subbing for him, playing one or two songs mm-hmm. for George Lucas or you know some somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And then when that went well, it's like okay, I can trust this kid to go yeah. cover something. So yeah, man, I even even to this day, probably eighty percent or more of the gigs I've done have been directly from yeah being a trustworthy sub for somebody else you know right and specifically steve yeah so yeah it's almost like a family tree yeah i you know i've got a handful of gigs that have come from if i follow it and i trace it down from branch to branch down to the root it comes from two or three people yeah there might be the odd you run into somebody um i got one gig from working at forks those two years I worked there. right, you know, um, yeah. but there's those people that champion you yeah. and are your cheerleader and it could be anybody. Yeah. And then when you go in and you prove yourself, then that turns into something else, Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. as it has. Well, in the first good gig, I had, so there were little, little subbing uh-huh. gigs and, but the first substantial gig I got was the Lori Morgan gig, which I mm-hmm. kept for several years right i can't i'm terrible with calendar time but i can't remember it's the exact months. year yeah uh, yeah yeah right. okay. okay uh the romans uh oh sorry. yeah <laughs> so the that Lori morgan thing that was a call that steve got um i may i think i have the story right and you should talk to greg stocky he can he'd be a good interview too but okay he can tell you what exactly happened i've never gotten it from his side but greg stocky had been doing that gig and the way i understand it he had given them let them know, hey, at this at this date, I'll I'm moving on to this other gig. So just letting you know, he'd given his notice basically, and I think for whatever reason they didn't they didn't take care of business and find his replacement. So it came down to the wire for that gig, and they right. were scrambling to find like they were calling a week before they needed yeah. a drummer. Yeah, and Steve got that call and, yeah. and knew that they were they needed a drummer and it would probably turn into a, a gig for somebody and it wasn't something he was interested in so he said uh, there's this new kid in town I know he can do it Yeah, you need somebody here's here's his number and they called me and I did the gig and it turned into a gig you know right? just learned a bunch of songs and met them in the middle of the night at a truck stop and got on the bus and then kept that gig for years. Okay, so there really wasn't an audition. It there was, was no audition. They were that hard up, and yeah. it was, you know, there was no time to put together yeah. an audition. Right. It was just trusting the recommendation yeah. of the drummer yeah. that had been recommended, even. Yeah. But Steve had a try, you know, the, I guess Steve's name was cemented enough right. that they trusted. But the, but the, the point is, is that they called somebody they knew and trusted. Yes. Well, based on the circumstances yeah, yeah. and the short amount of time, which worked in your favor. Yeah, totally. And he recommended somebody that they did not know, Nobody which was knew. you. Yeah. So I guess coming into a situation where no one knows you or you're new to town, mm-hmm. it's a new environment, you have that one person, you have that, you know, and that's, I guess, establishing those relationships, um, those connections it doesn't always have to be a teacher, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, but um, somebody knows and yeah. can put you on. The and that's list. A, that's an example of. I mean, Steve really stuck his neck out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it was based on. I mean, he he's known me for a long time, but I'd also had the opportunity in a few smaller situations to mm-hmm. prove to him that it, that yeah. it was something I could handle. So yeah. he wasn't being 
reckless or careless, right, right. you know, making the recommendation. But, mm-hmm. you know, it meant several years of steady work Do you remember how many years you did that? Well, um... I guess it's not important, but I mean, it's, it's like, it was a while, though. Yeah, yeah, it was... Um, I'm guessing I did it for like three years. Okay. And then left and then came back for another year or okay. two. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a lot, it's, it was a lot of work. And even since then I've subbed it a couple of times. Yeah. 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 And, and, and real quick, I mean, when you came in and you met the band and jumped on the bus and went, yeah. uh, what was the material you had? Was it the recordings? Uh, I think I had, I had live stuff, which okay. is best case scenario. If right. you can get a live tape. Right. Of, Something you know exactly what's going on. Did they want clicks? Did they have stuff running tracks, um, or was it because no. Lori Morgan's more old school? Yeah, as far as yeah, yeah. it was. Um, I'm trying to remember. I definitely used a metronome for counting stuff off, but I don't think I played with a metronome, uh-huh. which was good. Um, but yeah, there were tempos. I probably got tempos from maybe I got tempos from Greg Stocky. Mm-hmm. And the live made stuff. my own charts, right. or I had the live charts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had the live recording. It's yeah. just interesting because uh, I, I think my first show gig was was an older country artist, and you know, it, there's no tracks, there's no hey, everyone's on ears, or yeah. there's you know, this was 2000, and you know, gosh, just the fact that I had some sort of way of keeping time, yeah, you know, some some tricks and things like that, which and, I love those situations. I'd rather. You know, maybe have, count a song off with the metronome and then play with people. Yeah, <laughs> then yeah, then yeah. just bulldog through with the right, click and right. tracks. And, and it's I don't know. It's like I want to say with confidence that that's less the case, mm-hmm. but um, I don't think I can accurately say that. I think yeah. that there's all kinds of situations, mm-hmm. and um, you just have to be ready for both. And, and yeah. I think the reason I'm saying this is because. I think for many years I was trying to use a click when I could because yeah. um, most of the artists were using clicks and, yeah, yeah. and everyone wanted that in their ears. And I just, when an audition or a gig came up, I wanted it to be, and of course the studio were using mm-hmm. a click almost right. all the time. So it's it's just natural and it's, it's 100%. Mm-hmm. But I've almost come full circle to now you get called to do gigs and there's no click, there's no situation. And it's like, you have to be just as comfortable yeah. doing that as well. Yeah. And I think you can go too far to one side. Sure. Uh, I, I think a couple years ago, I know this is not about me. <laughs> I did real quick. It I is. just want to say it was like the, the, I did three gigs the whole year without in ears. Yeah. And, um, and I had these really cool songwriting gigs like at the basement. Yeah. And, you know, not much of a monitoring system and, you know, just no click, no nothing. Just yeah. really people playing music together. Yeah. And um, it was uncomfortable. And I hated that. Really? And I was like, what are you doing? It's like, this is what you do when you were, when you were a kid and you were yeah. making music and in loving this. And right. Not that you can't do that with a click. You should be able to do that. Right. It's harder. Everybody on the stage has to be a total killer to get that same kind of band thing to happen yeah. and play with the click. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I think you and I being we're same age mm-hmm. and the way I think about it, you and I grew up at a time where you were your whole goal was to be a guy who could play with the click, you know? 
And now, yeah, I would say probably this generation coming up behind us, of course you can play with a click. That's like, right? They've played with computers and metronomes. They, you know, right, right, right. I mean, we had all that stuff too, but maybe the generation before us didn't have it as readily available. So it was kind of like we trained ourselves up to be like click guys, mm-hmm. you know, play with the click, yeah. nail the click, all that stuff. Right. And now that's just given that any drummer, any, you know, 20 to 30 year old drummer is going to know how to play with a click if they're. Right. And that, I think that's what I'm saying is that yeah. there's going to be situations where you don't have the click it's yeah. or it's not part of the gig. Yeah. And you have to be just as comfortable yeah. in playing in time and establishing the time. Right. I think I'm just just starting to appreciate that and kind of getting a handle. Yeah. So yeah, I'm in the same spot as you. It's yeah. Like, Steve Ferroni talks about, you know, I learned, I worked so hard in getting my time together. Uh-huh. I mean, he, we're talking that definitely generation before yeah, us. Yeah. He talks about working on his time and really establishing a solid foundation. And then he goes in the studio and they want him to play to a click. And he's like, really? Mm-hmm. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so he's far back as far as saying, like, then they started to introduce the click mm-hmm. at that point, you know, in the 80s and stuff like that, that he just was like, oh, I don't need that. Yeah. But now everything's to the grid. Yeah. I want to talk about your home studio and what you're doing, because you yeah. were saying that you're working from home, essentially. Yeah. Um, how has that grown? How's that developed in your? How does that be? How has that become? I'm going to pause so I can edit this question. <laughs> <laughs> how has that become part of your work? Yeah, uh, I guess it's just another facet of putting a living together. You know, yeah. I for me, I'm. I've kind of always had what I call a legacy artist gig. Someone who's already had hits and maybe don't have something yeah. on the radio, but they've had enough success, mm-hmm. like the Lori Morgan gig. Yeah. And what I'm doing now, the Jody Messina gig, which um, they're, they'll book gigs based on their name, you yeah. know, based on past success, kind of. Yes. So we're still working those same nine number one hits that Jody Messina had. Yeah. And do we'll do 50, 60 dates max a year, okay. which is great. So that's not enough to put together a living, really. So, right. so on top of that, I, I need other things to do. So I have my overdub studio, mm-hmm. and it's not a ton of work. I actually maybe have let it atrophy a bit. With I think uh, I got into teaching lessons for a while, yeah, and was doing more and more lessons, and and the overdubbing from the house dropped a little bit, and I'm trying to flip that mm-hmm. do more recording but um I, I feel like you just have to have the ability to do that yeah. now if you yeah. want to record i mean and you talked with chad about it it's like yes the days of someone like chad doing triples every day yeah. of the week and on weekends it's really rare there might be one or two people doing that yeah so uh, I really love recording, and I don't get the opportunity to do that like yeah. like those guys did. So, um, working from home, working for songwriters, mm-hmm. overdubbing. Um, so when you say overdubbing, because uh, you know I'm thinking percussion, I'm thinking right, backing right. tracks, no, no, different yeah. types of things. But you're talking about all that stuff. Yeah, a d- drum set as well. Drum set primarily. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I like what Chad said about building, framing a house. 
Yes. It's like you're not, it's not really the same as playing with people in the room. You're, you kind of ha- have to have an imagination for what's going to get added. And you don't have control of what's going to happen to it no. when you let go of it, too. Right. So that part of it can be kind of disappointing, you know, because recording drums yeah. is, you know, that's, that's one of the harder things to do from an engineering standpoint. Yeah. And then you're handing this off. Mm-hmm. And early on, so I, I bought the house I'm in in 04 and built this room 05. 2005-ish. I think I saw it. I think you, it was like a room within a room that yeah. you had made. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I've had it for a while, and especially early on when I was doing this, the people that were getting tracks for overdubbing were usually songwriters that were taking these tracks from me and mixing them themselves on their oh. setup. Okay. So, yeah, so you've got a novice engineer yeah. that's now got, you know, nine tracks of you know, kick snare hat toms overheads. Right. And they don't know what phase is yeah. or polarity and EQ. So they bite off more than they can chew pretty yeah. much. So it's it's hard with the, the overdub thing to know do you give people complete control of what you send to them or should you mix it and just hand them two tracks? So you, you kinda gotta feel out what this scenario is. And that's a good I mean that's a really good point because uh I've talked to different drummers that are doing that more, and I'm just starting to do it. Yeah. So things like phase and polarity, I have a rough idea yeah. of what you're talking about, but I don't really have a good grip of it. Right. So um, how do you start? You know, like where did you go to learn? Because when I was going to your, looking at your website, uh, it's 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 just really well laid out, and it, it really shows people that you know what you're doing, you know gear, and and I think with confidence they can say, hey, this is great. He's going to get good drum sounds. It's performance is part of the equation when you're recording at home. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so how did you go about doing this? Did you study this in college? No, and this is all all a uh, trial by fire, trial you know, just messing things up early on. Yeah, but I'd say mentors like like um audio engineer mentors you know oh yeah getting coffee with guys asking i'm always seeking out mix engineers and recording engineers and Mm -hmm. picking their brains Mm -hmm. about gear about you know i'll take tracks to them and say let them kind of audit what i've done you know yeah is this okay you know yeah um so bart persley is one engineer that i talk to a lot chad brown's another guy that has helped a lot and these this is, you know, I'll do a track for them and just take an extra 10 minutes of their time to say, Hey, what's, you know, take a look at this. Is this squirrely? Is this good? Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's usually about building my confidence just to know that I'm doing it right. Right. Um, and usually the mistake people make is you open, when you open up a bunch of mics on a drum set, the, the phase thing is where people really so explain to me kind of what you're talking about with that okay so um phase is you know if you're looking at if you open up your pro tool screen and you Mm -hmm. open up those waves you can actually see the visual representation of your your waves you know the Mm -hmm. positive and negatives when the waves go up and down if uh if those don't align in such a way they they can uh there can be kind of a subtractive effect right you especially here in the low end if they're 
out of phase, meaning not aligned. You know, the peaks and valleys aren't so aligned. So phase, phase cancellate, cancellation yeah. is that. Yeah, phase okay. cancellation. So you lose low end. So polarity would be 180 degrees of phase. So a good test, like if you're checking out uh, a couple tracks on your microphone, like maybe you're going to check out your pair of overheads. Yeah. I'll usually turn one speaker off and put it, put it in mono. Hmm. Put put what you're playing back in mono. Turn a speaker off, and listen yeah. back. Maybe pull up a trim plugin on one of those channels yes. and flip the polarity. That's that little circle with the slash through it. And if you hear a change in the low end, uh, the whatever whatever position it's in that has less low end, yeah. that's that's a not as good phase. If you hit that button and you don't hear anything change, yeah, that means you've got a a big problem so you want to move your mics if you hear if you push that button and you hear a bunch of low end on one you know on one of the situations you want to pick the one that has all the low end okay i mean that's a good phase really so phase cancellation is a, is more detrimental to low end that's where i notice it yeah i'm okay. i'm this is all uh my all my engineering knowledge is pretty street so <laughs> this is all just no it's cool because i think you're going to be able to uh explain it and you, from your experience yeah in such a way that because if yours is street <laughs> mine is all like, those street people yeah, yeah if you're an engineer mine don't listen sewer. to this i'm probably not getting this right <laughs> but yeah that's been the that's been the biggest thing for me and then so you're going through all your combinations of mics yeah like if you have two kick drum mics you know yes. maybe you have one in one out right do that, do that little polarity check. Yeah, you'll print, you know, record a little bit right. since you are probably the engineer too. Yeah, and you're probably listening in the same room you're drumming in. Just record a little snippet and yeah, and just kind of pair up different mics and and solo them up. You know, put it in mono and even better, put it in one speaker. Solo it up. Listen for better low end. Interesting. And, uh, and then making it. Hopefully, your mic pre's have a polarity switch on them so you can. Once you find out what those relationships are, like for instance, the overhead thing. If yes. I heard, if I heard that uh, they were out of phase, right. you know, maybe the actually let's go with the bass drum thing. So, if my in, inside kick drum mic and my outside kick drum mic, yeah, I find that relationship where they're, if you know, maybe I pulled them up in Pro Tools and I hit that polarity switch, and one of those combinations had great low end and was just clear and sounded good. Well, then go over to your mic pre's and make that adjustment before you print it. So, so with overhead, sometimes it's just about moving the mic. Yeah, but yeah. with a kick drum mic, it could be moving. It could be it the could, same. You could thing. be moving, and are you moving it very much, or um, to to make that change? It could no, usually not. It, it might be. It's probably within a foot or something. Yeah. I don't know. You'd kind of mess with it. Yeah, but. And did you discover this trick on your own to kind of that? I'm sure that was probably. Yeah. That was probably through a mentor. Well, yeah. just knowing that phase yeah. was the—that's the thing. The that, culprit. That's the big culprit. So, um, and it's that you know that's just magnified every mic you add to the scenario. You're just magnifying that whole problem. Yeah. So, I think that's the thing that, and and hopefully people can relate to this that are starting to record at home, is uh, drums being the instrument that they are require many mics and a lot of space. Yeah. We don't always have those things. Right. And uh, yet we come from a situation where we're like, well, this is how it's done. You put a microphone on every drum. Yeah. 
top and bottom snare, in and out, kick drum, overheads, room mic, all this stuff. So you add all this stuff. Well, then you're still not in the studio. You're still at home. Mm-hmm. You're in your room, in your basement, wherever. Yeah. And so the potential for these kinds of problems are very real. Yeah. And it happens. And I'm, I'm kind of dealing with it myself. I could say I've got this great room here yeah, in the yeah. living room. Yeah, you do, actually. But uh, <laughs> have uh, to, to have drums set up. have to move out. Right. Which I think I might be able to get away with it. Uh I think they're beautiful, probably, you know. So I think that it's it's really hard to say, well, look, when you're recording in this small room, maybe yeah. you don't need all these microphones. Oh, yeah. Best best drum sounds ever are yeah. fewer mics, like all the, the famous oh, yeah. know, John Bonham thing is the Glenn Johns, you know, I think three mics, maybe four. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, look up the Glenn Johns technique. That's a great way to get. Mm-hmm. And then you're just given... You have less control later, yes, you know, that's true. For for mixing a bunch of mics, but so what? <laughs> well, and maybe when you hand those tracks over, yeah. there's less chance of the songwriter, part-time engineer, yeah, uh, messing up what yeah. you've done, yeah, and then passing that on. Yeah, Marshall Richardson played on this track. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's really crappy drum sound. Yeah. Never calling it. Yeah, you know? that's that's the thing about the phase thing. You could ha- you could have it completely smoking, but one also when you start EQing mm-hmm. drum tracks, your EQ is changing phase relationships too. So oh, yeah. what got printed uh, can still get mangled later. Yeah, or you know, in phase also if uh, if that little stem of snare drum on your Pro Tools session if it slid left or right that changes how things line up too it's true that's true yeah. it is scary when you hand that stuff there's, over yeah there's a lot of stuff was there something like that stuck out or maybe an epiphany when you were hanging out with these guys and getting advice from these mentors i think um they all gave me good information but i think um letting them audit my stuff and tell me yes you're doing you're doing just fine it's mm-hmm. it sounds good that was a big thing for me i remember early on doing tracks i mean like within the first couple of years i had my room i did some tracks for a friend and sounded great in the room i thought and uh then you know they went went away with their track did their record and i didn't see this friend for a couple of years and I ran into him. I was like, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a while. He's like, uh, I didn't want to tell I, And I asked him, whatever happened to those tracks? He was like, right. oh, man, I didn't want to tell you. They, you know, he couldn't use your tracks. He, he had a producer friend doing this. He yeah. couldn't do your tracks. There was too much bleed through all the mics. And I was crushed. And it, yeah. I thought, oh, man, I screwed this up so bad that he didn't want to talk to me for two years. Yeah. Well, I still had this session on a drive. So I, I went and checked it out just completely crushed and heartbroken and just felt bad felt like a total sham and uh so i thought i had completely done this wrong and i checked him out again and what this producer air quotes (laughs) was hearing was he could hear you know he could hear snare drum in the bass drum mic and he could hear yeah so it's like another novice yeah totally crushed my confidence yeah because they didn't understand how to work with Right. With drums, and of course, you want to you want to go to lengths to try to minimize yeah. bleed and things. But you put a loud drum set in a room with a bunch of mics, you're going to get some bleed. So, so getting my confidence crushed on things like that, yeah. but actually wasn't 
actually had done a fine job. And then having yeah, just having another engineer who does it for a living tell me, no, this is that's cool. It what is interesting because you have to, like you say, you have to let go of these tracks, mm-hmm. and they're gonna go wherever they yeah. go. And even when you're in a controlled environment with a with an engineer in a studio, and yeah. we've talked about we've talked about this before, where. You know, hey, when it's done, then the producer or the the band or whoever you're working for, they take it to the next level. And sometimes, I mean, I've gotten stuff back and it's like, why did they take that part out? Yeah, yeah. It's like, that was supposed to be part of the song. Yeah. There was a Curb studio. It may still be there. It's the Low White Building on Music Row. I was in there recording one day and uh, in the big tracking room, all of the talkback mics were 421s. And wow. 421s weren't on my Tom, so I was like, <laughs> I got to find out what this is on my Tom. Yeah, because he obviously has 421s. He's got 421s, <laughs> but that's not what he put on my Tom. So I found my maybe my favorite mic of all time, ATM 25, which uh, you can still get on, a- on eBay straight from Japan. And they had a silver anniversary edition, but ATM... 25 audio technica yeah. is that right atm 25 it's on my website if i if i'm calling it wrong but it's the best kick drum mic i've ever heard really? and it's a fantastic tom mic and it's it's less than a 421 oh, costs wow. less than a 421 anyway yeah i thought that was a funny story to see 421s as talkbacks didn't you have that on your website something about that i the thought ATM, i read that probably or or uh I, yeah, I probably got way too excited about it when I got mine. When we're um, while we're on the studio subject, um, want to mention. So you've been working with Jody Messina, yeah. And how long has that been? Um, that one I actually can remember. So six years. Yeah, I started uh, summer of 2010. Okay, so going on six years, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, while we're on the studio thing, you've uh, recorded some tracks with her as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, which is becoming more of a regular thing. Yeah. But for a long time, especially in a place like Nashville, it's not common for the band that is on the road with the, the artist to record as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah. like you say, some of these, um, and you recorded with Lori Morgan too. I did. Yeah, you? she did a. Yeah, she did a record that she used the whole band on. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, it's yeah. When we got to town, that just. That just did not happen no. at all. And even if you were recording, you might be playing on somebody else's record, but you didn't play on your, your on road artist. gigs record. Right, <laughs> exactly. Kind of, yeah. Well, what was that experience like? And, and did you guys record? How many tracks did you record with her? Or? With, with, uh, with Jody, we had done some demo sessions leading up to a record. She had been writing for a while, so there was a year where we'd go in sporadically and record some. The record that I'm on, her her most recent one me actually she did go back and use all the she used uh julian king who produced all her hits mm-hmm. and it was lonnie wilson and all the yeah, all the guys that right, had been right. recording with her and then uh for whatever reason she wanted to change one there was one song that she wanted to approach the drums differently mm-hmm. so i just overdubbed on that song to what oh, was already okay. there yeah. okay so that um that's the only part of that record i was on okay and then but she did use this for she uses this for demos occasionally. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's... Which is great. That is, because uh, for many reasons, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's not the most common thing. And here you have Jody that's been doing it a certain way 
for yeah. a very long time. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, Lonnie Wilson. There's that. Killer. Right. Yeah. Um, I had a chance to learn some of our material for a weekend a year, many years ago. Yeah. And man, I, I really enjoy it. And I've uh, probably many of us uh, who've worked with uh, female singers that are doing country music are doing a couple, one or two Jody Messina songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always enjoy it. Yeah. I always enjoy her stuff. And Lonnie's parts were amazing. Yeah. 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 Really good. So Actually, the, the track I played on, I loved his drum part. And she just, there was, she wanted it approached differently, but. So what, I remember what hearing difference? His thing. What because uh, that's I mean that's kind of a a thing that I think a lot of us do is when you go to learn a song and you're like man that's a great drum part should I just do it exactly like that mm-hmm. should I do my own thing you know um, but then here you just, this is like the complete you have to do something different she wants a different that's approach. A, yeah, yeah that she wanted that? something different yeah there was nothing wrong with Lonnie's part actually uh, I preferred what he did honestly. <laughs> but I, I think in that case she wanted she wanted it to be more exciting which to her was more cymbals <laughs> lots lots more crashes yeah just a busy she wanted a busier drum part which i'm not a busy player so i was reluctant to <laughs> do it like i'm listening to lonnie's part i'm like there's a master at work that's that's what i strive yeah play that part like that that's what that song is begging for but she wanted she wanted a little more Exciting, I think, were her words, and it, it was about adding more crashes on two and four. And yeah, may, there may have been some bigger drum fills. That was one thing I noticed about Lonnie is that he does the he does play a lot of crashes on yeah. two and fours. Yeah, especially totally. That's interesting. Um, I do want to ask about uh, Jody's gig. Uh, when you is she very particular about the parts that you play? She, um, so historically. Yes. Yes. She's very particular. Right. But for whatever reason, I've gotten a pass. I mean, I pretty much do play it like the record, I think, or at least like the board tapes that I learned. It's been long enough. Yeah. But um, she doesn't nitpick me like she has historically. Uh, And it's not just me, the whole band. I think the stories I hear, there was a time where... Every after every show, yep. the whole band front lounge listening to a board tape, yep. and yeah, she doesn't miss a thing. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but I think uh, you know she's married, has kids. I think that just, <laughs> I think she just mellowed out maybe. Yeah. But she still she still cares a lot about her show and and yeah. knows everything that's happening. She, that's incredible. She's good. She's a wonderful musician. You grew up in Memphis, yeah, and we've talked to uh, lots of different players that grew up in Memphis. And we're always talking about, yeah. like, man, what's in the water there? You know? I was listening to the, aside from all the just musical genius coming from Greg and Chad, just to hear their accent. Like for some reason, I it's so subtle. Yes, but that sounds like my people to hear them talk. It sounds like I, I don't think I have it. Maybe I do. Maybe other people say I do. But yeah. like to hear my siblings talk, or just yeah. just the whole generation of people before me. I always wonder why I didn't get that. Maybe TV ruined me or something. I don't know. It's a very comfortable, relaxed Southern thing. Yeah. Um, that's uh, I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's 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 a comforting accent. Yeah. You know. Southern comfort? No, uh, it's a comforting. That's an idea too. <laughs> uh, 
there are so many great players that come out of Memphis, obviously not only drummers. Yeah. So did that, do you find the music or something in the water influenced uh, you? Or? You know, even as a, even being young when you, you know, everybody's tendency is, is to overplay. I always appreciated an Al Green record, you know, hearing yeah. Howard Grimes and Al Jackson. And uh, as I learned about Gene Chrisman, all those guys, mm-hmm. there, there's... Uh, and even the Muscle Shoals guys, there's I really, really, really enjoy the way those guys play. How old were you when you were discovering these guys? Um, I had I remember having Al Green records first, and um, I I don't know at this at the same time I was buying like Police Synchronicity and yeah. Led Zeppelin two. I was buying Al Green. That's and awesome. I just I don't even know I don't know where how I got exposed to it really. Yeah. Maybe maybe turned on the radio and just heard it or something i don't know because again my family wasn't yeah nobody was pointing records out my siblings were old enough that that they weren't in the house with me really okay so they weren't handing me records i'm I'm not really sure but i was always way into al green but despite that lack of information from your parents or whatever you that just being kind of in the city limits, you yeah. had it's exposure to, to me somehow. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I do remember one thing uh, that's sad that it's not there. I remember being young, and of course, uh, I, f- I feel like I had a lot of independence just to go. And probably everybody our age, just you get on your bike and you just leave. Yeah, see you later. You know, be home <laughs> for dinner or whatever. But I remember being downtown in Memphis. What is? Um, there was a WC Handy Park, which is still there, but now it's like a concrete amphitheater kind okay. of situation. Yeah. When I was little, that was a lawn, and there would be real deal blues dudes with homemade guitars and yeah. homemade amps sitting in that park playing. And I remember I knew that was wow. the real deal. And it's sad that you can't see that anymore. I don't, I don't think anything like that's yeah. going on. I mean, these were guys that came up from Mississippi, or, yeah. or maybe they lived in Memphis, but they were... They were the real deal. Man, that's awesome. That's it's awesome. cool to see that stuff. Uh, you, uh, where'd you go to school? Oh, you went to North Texas, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. Okay. What was, that, what was that experience like? It was really great. Um, yeah. It was really the only school I looked at. I guess uh, I had another teacher in, in high school, Ed Murray, who's a, sim- a symphony guy in Memphis. He's, okay. still, he's still around there. But I think it must have been him pointed, kind of pointed me to North Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, my high school in high school we didn't have a very extensive program not a very diverse music program mm-hmm. but it was football and marching band you know yeah right so we had a drum line mm-hmm. and we i spent every waking hour playing my drum set or being at drum line rehearsal yeah. i mean we would break into the band room so we could practice in the <laughs> summer yeah so um i was into that and i think ed knew he knew I wanted to do music, yeah. and he knew drumline interested me. I never did drum corps. I had uh, my best friend, Matt Scoggins. He would do drum corps every summer, and I always had this thought of, I don't think I can be away from my drum set for a whole summer thing, so I me never too. did it. Me too, me yeah. too, man. Yeah. So I didn't do that, but uh, but was pretty hardcore in high school with the rudiment thing, and North Texas had a great drumline and a great percussion department great music school so i kind of set my eyes on that and went um i went as a jazz performance major okay initially yeah because that's 
seemed like what a drum set guy should do. Right. And I got there, and I, I think the first week I was there, I saw Ari Honig, who is like a real jazz guy, yeah, playing with the one o'clock in a in a a little club in the student union, and realized that I'm not a jazz guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, drum set was always my focus, and I studied with So yeah. for a few semesters, and um, eventually real eventually gave in to the fact that I'm not a jazz guy, and this is a real jazz program this jazz program is is not so you get a taste of jazz this is for guys that play right jazz right like i hadn't played a bunch of jazz i played rock and roll i listened to a little bit of jazz but that's not what i reached for right when i was putting some on so i got exposed to great jazz there and i worked on being a jazz player for a little while and eventually gave in and realized that's not what I'm that's not going to be mm. what I'm about so I changed to a Bachelor of Arts in music okay and what that did for me is I uh, instead of taking a couple jazz arranging courses I took a few extra drum set lessons yeah. and added a science and then I was done so it was almost a race to get done with school but now in hindsight I kind of wish I'd had those ranging classes <laughs> I know cool. I know it would have yeah, it would have killed me I don't know if I could have done it right because it, it was so would have been so far above my head at that point was there any uh, engineering or anything like that available okay. nothing okay. whatsoever there was there was a MIDI lab that was part of the yeah. percussion kind of in our percussion hall we had a we called it M1, M1D1 yeah that one oh. <laughs> There was a there was a little elective course where you could take some MIDI, but there was no technology whatsoever. It was all wow playing, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and challenge the student body was just ridiculous. I was challenged from the second I stepped foot in there till the day I left. You know, wow. I never never felt like I had a hang of it, and probably everybody who goes to college has the thought: if I could just go in there today, I'd. I could do it. <laughs> you know, like in hindsight. In hindsight. Oh, yeah. of course. It's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I could, I could probably do that program pretty well today. Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, the four mount thing would elude me. Yeah. At this point. That, <laughs> yeah. I, I got away with, I think I did one lesson or, or one semester of pretty serious four mallet stuff. I say serious. It wasn't serious at all compared to four mallet guys, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I did a lot of xylophone, a lot of snare drum, a little bit of formalit stuff. Okay. And when I changed to Batch of Arts, that allowed me to tailor it a little bit. Right, to right. Drum set and, and that's cool because I think that um, learning jazz and getting kind of a good grip on that playing is, I mean, does not hurt in the least. No, it's great. Anything, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. For, for any player. Uh, and I, I'm so glad that I, I did some studying of that. But like Chad Cromwell said, you know, like beat music mm-hmm. and listen to oh, yeah. certain. I love the way you put that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, I kind of know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. And uh, kind of finding your strengths and focusing on that. Um, I think for many of us, not all of us, uh, but for many of us, you kind of have to find your strengths, and that entails what you're good at. It yeah. also entails what your, where your interests lie. Yeah. And it sounds like you discovered that kind of early on. Yeah. Again, I think learning all these other instruments, I enjoyed the hell out of playing marimba. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed it, and I think it opened up my musical. Yeah, yeah. But when I changed majors uh, to music business, 
I didn't have to focus so much yeah. on this and that. So my your experience is always everyone's experience is different. Um, but North Texas has such a great reputation. Yeah. Um, so were you already, did you have your, uh, uh, sights set on Nashville even at that point? Yeah. It's, it's hard to say when I, I don't know if I hadn't made a decision or if it was just kind of a slow burn in my head, but I don't remember ever thinking of a different place to go. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I pretty much knew I was coming to Nashville. And why not stay in Memphis with that, with your family? And oh, stuff? well, I just watched every generation of musicians before me uh-huh. pick up and go somewhere else, which yeah. I love Memphis, but it just seems like it tops out as far as the ability to make a living. I think yeah. I think that's changing now. Of course, Ardent Studios is still there. It's great, great. It's always been state-of-the-art studio. Mm-hmm. I mean, going back to when Stax was running, Ardent, Ardent was starting up. And that's a, a great recording facility. There's some other great studios, but uh, I don't know if the, the economy of music just yeah. never quite... Mm-hmm gets going in Memphis so it all my whole family's there all my siblings are there yeah but it just Nashville seems like more of a business yeah town, so yeah very much so uh, you know I get out of school North Texas feeling pretty good yeah hands are feeling good been practicing like a demon you know yeah playing a million cover gigs in Dallas so I feel pretty good and then walking into third Lindsley and hearing Greg Morrow play with Groove Yard or Chad Cromwell play with Al Anderson and just, I mean, getting schooled. Right, just right. the balance of the kit, mm-hmm. just every piece of their craft totally dialed in. Yeah. But they're making art, you know? It's, yeah. it's art. Right. And I think, I think the big thing was the balance. Those are two, Greg and Chad, two master yes, recording yeah. drummers who have logged so many hours hearing themselves on playback. Right. And just the balance of their kit, the way they propel a band, the way it feels. Yeah. Just, just... Was there a way they were balancing out the kit? Like you're talking about volume between... Like like specific things? Um, You know, I don't know if I could put my finger on it initially, but it was just like, just literally, well, not literally, but knocked me out. You know, just hearing the sound come off their drums and just... Mm -hmm. Just wanting to jump out of my chair because yeah. it sounded so good. Right. Just, you know, the the touch that Chad talked about developing his consistency on yes. a snare. And it's that's not um, that's not coming from like a machine type thing. It's just a pleasant way to hear that snare drum coming at you. It's a good point. It's right. not a it's not so much a mechanical thing. It's definitely a musical thing and because it could be distracting if it's not right. It's not and he, he talked about beat music, and I think that's that's uh, specifically in that style of music, having that consistent yes. snare drum. Yeah. And he's not back there saying this next snare drum hit has to be the same as this one, and here comes another one. It's got to be the same. No, he's he's already taking care of that. He's just plying his craft yeah. and making art. And there's a balance coming off the kit. Right. Right. And. Probably, if, if it was something specific, it was probably um, maybe maybe the hi-hats are just tucked in there just right for the emotion of what's going on. Yeah. You know, taking your dynamic cues off a singer, yeah. that's really, 
it's such a simple thing to do. Yeah. If you just, the song will kind of play itself mm-hmm. if you know what to listen for. Right, right. And I think singers, you know, for what we do, mostly playing my singer-songwriters, right. that, that maybe is the key. Right. Your, your band leader, your, your singer, mm-hmm. if they're playing guitar, that's something. Yeah, if you've got a singer that's playing an instrument, the way they're playing an instrument can dictate kind of the emotion that mm-hmm. you're going right. to lend to your right, drums. Right, or right, right. One great lesson I got from Ed Sof, and this is not specific to him, but uh, good advice for any musician or anybody doing anything play with purpose you Mm -hmm. know so if you're playing your hi-hat what do you intend your hi-hat to do you know Mm. are you just playing it is your arm just swinging out of emotion Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know reckon it or you know what what job does it have right you know what's the sound you're trying to make what's your purpose and that's i also wonder if his uh Advice has to do with just the musicality, the rhythm yeah. that you're playing, and and hi hat in particular is that thing that we do that can be can add to the groove. Yeah, there's a, a producer. His name is I'm forgetting. He did some Counting Crows stuff and many. Gosh, T Bone. T Bone. There it is. Yeah, hated <laughs> hates the hi hat. Yeah, because. Many times we're playing it as a timekeeping device, right. not a part of the instrument. Yeah, totally. And Just so out of I'm habit. wondering if that's what Ed is talking about. Yeah. Oh, intent. yeah, absolutely. Your your intent, your purpose, it may not be part of your purpose. You take it out. Yeah, subtractive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes recordings. Yeah, I love I love recordings without hi-hats or playing a part without a hi-hat. So it's so exciting. All of a sudden, it's something you're still playing boom smack, but there's... yeah. Let the guitar have the time, or, or maybe yeah. there's maybe the notes are just longer. Know your note durations too. That's another one. You know, we as like drummers. Uh, well, I can only talk for me, I guess. But initially, you know, we're learning rhythm. Yes, and it's all about the attack yes. of that rhythm. And I'd say that's one thing I got. I don't know if it's specific to. It's not specific to jazz, but I think a lot of jazz drummers get it. Um, don't think about the. Don't only think about where your note initiates think about the length of your note you know mm-hmm. and that's that's a big thing like you know big band drummers you know your ride cymbal or setting up you know setting up a hit with a horn player is it a short hit is it a long hit yeah those kind of things you got your long sounds and short sounds and exactly. that's another thing i think that makes chad and greg so groovy is their note length or the space you know the space between their notes you hit a snare yeah and it goes crack and yeah you know it decays whatever but even if you don't hear that, even if you don't hear the note duration, you know, you're not a trumpet player putting air in your horn, but right. you still account for that space. Right. That's what makes that feel so good, whether mm-hmm. whether you've thought about it or not. Yeah. That's. I think that that's one thing that drummers get away with because we don't have to yeah. uh, consider the length of a note because we're not because we're not horn players. We're not yeah. doing these other things, but we've all played with those bass players that exactly. know how to hold the note out or, exactly. or don't know how to hold yes. the note. And so it's like, how did this guy play the same part as the bass player I played with yesterday, but something feels a lot better today? Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's so many factors, but the, th- the biggest thing that stands out to me is length of note, Yeah, depending Absolutely. on the style, the feel, tempo, all that stuff. Yeah, their, their instrument generally is such an economy of notes you know they're playing quarters and halves but where that note starts where it ends 
Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely. We have to consider the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look at somebody like Levon Hill that was singing. Maybe that's yes. why he sounds so good playing drums because he's singing and breathing. And yeah, yeah. He's oh, automatically thinking of note lengths. Right, right. And uh, Erskine talks about um, the space and uh, the the movement uh, of our hands and, our, yeah. and just our bodies. And when we get nervous, we're we tense up. Everything gets clipped off. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and so the feel, you know, I get nervous. I want to. I want to rush, and it's like because my arm and my body isn't moving mm-hmm. as much. It's very. Um, my shoulders get tense, yeah. and so um, when you're relaxed and you're moving more, and there's that circle, that space yeah. between the notes, then the groove is there. Yeah, you remind. That's another big lesson I got from Soph was mm-hmm. showing me. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, I think his analogy was uh, he would walk across the room and you'd watch the stride of his legs, you know, just how you normally walk down the street. Yeah. There's a, you know, your leg swings for that full step, whatever. And then, yeah. you know, the comical other side of that would be to, you know, be really clippy. Watch. School of silly walk. Yeah, yeah. So, or you look at somebody where it's really apparent that kind of motion is look like somebody like Keith Carlock. If you watch him play... Or Joe, we talked about Jojo Mayer earlier. I don't yeah. know if that was on here, but you can see their their movement accounting for the time between notes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's sometimes it's easy to talk about. <laughs> it's hard to apply yeah, yeah. in all situations, yeah. depending on what you're dealing with. Yeah, and the environment in which you're working. And there's been times that even I remember um, talking to Lee Kelly about he. He said, I had to just lower my shoulders. Yes, I love that. I love when he said that, and I put that into practice. I, I remember hearing too. him say that. I did too. And I, I, for myself, I took a Sharpie, and I wrote it on my snare drum. Yeah, man. And I took a picture of it, and I sent it to him. I said, check it out. He said, yeah, that's thanks. great. Thank you, Lee. That was great advice. How do you kind of round out your schedule for the year? Yeah, it's... Uh, I guess it's kind of three fronts, the, or maybe four. So Jody's thing yeah. is kind of my guaranteed income. If if nothing else happened, I made some sort of a living mm-hmm. doing that, and that's been really good. Um, always, like I said, always been an artist that you know forty to sixty shows a year. I've never done the get on a bus and be gone for two hundred shows a year mm-hmm. for for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And now that I have a family, that's just not that's awesome. just not something I know. And then. Uh, then the overdub studio and then um a lot of it outside of that is just playing around town which isn't that lucrative but that's really where other gigs stem from or other sessions stem from so i just try to try to make everything i do in town especially the live stuff be musically meaningful to me you know so you've I'll feel good about my playing. People enjoy hopefully what they hear. You know, if it's mm-hmm. coming from a place where I enjoy it, it's mm-hmm. usually enjoyable for them. And that's just right. good advertising. Yeah, for so. sure. For sure. For the stuff that's making the money that may not be as right. yeah. creative or yeah. whatever. I want to ask you a couple, um, about a couple of bands that you work with, uh, hip jelly. Yeah. So that's a perfect example. Yeah. So yeah. hip jelly. Um, so always, I've always had a, love of the memphis thing yeah obviously right so as long as i've been in town i've kind of toyed with the idea of having kind of a booker t and them mgs kind of 
um, well, could just covering Booker T and the, MG, the MGs or having that style of rhythm section thing. And yeah. I never, I never um, took the steps to make it happen. But my friends all heard me talk about it forever. <laughs> so finally, Chris Autry. Uh, he's uh, let me see. Me and Chris Autry, bass player who plays with Jody. Chris Cotros, fantastic guitar player. He's with Terry Clark now, but um, those are two of the guys I met early when I got to town. Right. And Billy Nobel, yeah. uh, keyboard player, he plays with Tim McGraw now. Um, we got together for fun just to play some of that type of music. Yeah. And um, Chris had gotten into arranging. Chris Autry got into arranging horns. So um, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I think I just kind of put on his plate some some of the stacks catalog for him to arrange some horns for. And yeah, we got a handful of singers. A lot of people in the group will do double duty. Sarah Beck sings with this. Tommy Keenum sings and also plays Barry sax. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy's playing keys of course, and also sings. Um, but our, and, and we always have two or three horns besides that. Yeah. Um, usually Roy AG is amongst, among those guys. And we just go through, initially it was a stacks catalog and, and the requirement was that it was, you know, not, it didn't have to be a hit. It didn't have to be anything anybody that, that comes to see us has heard before. Right. It just had to be something we loved and yeah. couldn't stand not to play. Right. Basically. That's cool. And then Chris will arrange a horn part for it and kind of get the horns together and we book gigs and it, it's expanded to some of the Muscle Shoals stuff. Um, and I think the next thing we'll do is maybe the Willie Mitchell high recordings like the Al Green stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's just been great. It's fun. Usually end up playing family wash for a yeah. pie and a beer and some tips. Yeah. But it's so much fun. Yeah. And the band sounds good. And the um, the other uh, gig you had, uh, Gil Bassa. Oh, yeah. That's another Chris Autry thing. That was Chris Autry. Chris Autry that, production. Yeah. <laughs> I think he, uh, for a while, they were putting Chris Autry Presents on the on the flyers. Yeah, that's more Chris's thing. Um, uh, I, I'd say hired, but hired for pie and beer. Yeah. <laughs> when I say pie, I'm talking about Shepherd's Pie, Family right. Wash, for those who, Man, that don't know. That's a sweet tooth. No, yeah. no, Shepherd's Pie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, I think that was Chris's first foray into arranging for horns, and he did a bossa nova band. Yeah, yeah, so, I love that. I mean, yeah. Brazilian music, I yeah. just I completely love, yeah. and that you guys are doing this in Nashville is so yeah. cool. Which is another thing that wouldn't have happened when you and I first got to town. You would, right? You know, right. The jazz scene isn't as strong as you think it would be here. I think there it's getting are getting stronger, inroads. though. Yeah, right. It is changing as more musicians are coming yeah. to town from all over the country. And not afraid to go play a jazz gig. When we got here, people would tell us, don't go play a jazz gig. They'll think you're a jazzer. Right, right, Which right. No, when they hear me play, they'll know. <laughs> I was going to say, nobody would make that mistake if they heard me. <laughs> no, I can fake it pretty well. Unless you're a real jazzer, then you'll probably know that I'm yeah, not. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> What's your opinion about Twitter and and all this stuff? Right. And is it is it worth your time? Is it is it? Um, how do you manage that? Um, I don't pipe up on them much unless something really strikes me. Yeah. I feel like I get got to get it out. It's a uh, it's so it's such a one way conversation that yes. some I get I get a a little anxious that I'm missing opportunities to have two way conversations mm-hmm. when I'm. Mm-hmm. That's what I see a, a lot on Facebook. It's it's so one way that it I, I don't 
I don't love it, but I think it's I think it is important to it's uh it's a really efficient way just for people to be reminded that you're around and yes. what you're doing. Yeah. Um so I don't pipe up on it much, but it's it's a cool tool when when you've got something to say and I mm-hmm. I'll get on there at least once a day and and scroll through the feed and see what people are up to or right. or like I'll hear your podcast and be so pumped that I have to say something or you know <laughs> you know I I love it as an opportunity to to cheerlead for things that are going going on around you know I try I, to be a positive voice on there although occasionally I do succumb to complaining a little it's, bit it's tough it's tough <laughs> i think though though you brought up a couple good points is that uh, in a town like nashville that that could be uh, the case in many other towns yeah is that um if people don't hear from you or they don't see what you're doing it out of sight out of mind absolutely uh, because we're just one of hundreds and hundreds of really great players no kidding that if Somebody goes up to a keyboard player and says, hey, I need a drummer for this session. Do you know anybody? That instant, that very second, yeah. if you're not in the top two, three, or four drummers in their brain at that second, yeah. then, you, and they may walk away from that conversation after giving a handful of names and say, oh, you know, oh, man, I should have, you know, Marshall would be good, too, about that, but uh, he's already got it lined up. Or, or, yeah, yeah, people assume you have something going on. Or, yeah, I'm guilty of it, too, when yeah. somebody asks me for some musician and... I just, you know, yeah. some of your best choices may not be fresh on your mind just because you haven't seen them in a couple of days or you just saw the other guy. Yeah, yeah. But I think the home studio thing is cool that people know what you're doing. And so because yeah. I think booking even sessions in studio has a little bit of can have flexibility as far yeah. as time wise. Where yeah. live performances, uh, it's this show at this time yeah. and this place. Yeah. Um, so um, that that's not as restrictive. What's the rest of your year look like? It'll be um, so the Jody Messina gig is kind of perpetual yeah. touring, like all the touring gigs I've I've done out of Nashville. So um, the next couple of months we'll do one or two a month for her, but then it'll crank up to I say crank up, it barely gets cranking, but right. it'll be like four to six a month. Yeah, you know, and maybe in the heat of the summer we'll be gone for a full week. In general, it's it's a weekend gig. Yeah, so that's cool. Um, anything coming up locally, like with Gilbasa or Hitler, oh no, there's you know? I don't think there's anything actually, but there'll certainly be a hip jelly gig that I'll Facebook. Yes, and uh, yeah, whatever Chris Autry gets me involved in. <laughs> <laughs> All my gigs come from Steve Eby and Chris Autry. Shout outs to those guys. Shout outs. Oh. Man, I appreciate you taking the time oh, man. and talking to me. Honored to be asked. Yeah, I'm man. I'm a podcast enthusiast, and you got a good one. So. Yeah, it's been cool, there man. You go. It's been cool. Thanks, Marshall. So there you have it. There is Marshall. Um, I feel a certain kinship with Marshall. We both moved to Nashville about the same time and um, are in the process of uh, raising young families and kind of making it all work. I appreciate him taking the time to uh, talk to me and um, just share his story. He's such a humble guy. Uh, You wouldn't know kind of what a beast he is. I've heard him play off and on over the years, and he's um, definitely got that Memphis sound that uh, is in the water there. I'm not really sure what it is, but uh, it's an honor to know Marshall and um, to talk to him for this podcast. So thanks to him. Once again, I want to say thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. 
Tune in next week where Zach Albetta will be the host for the Working Drummer podcast. Also want to remind you that we are part of the Merge Network, which includes two other podcasts. There's the Daniel Glass podcast and Nick Ruffini's Drummer's Resource, full of information and cool interviews. So until next time, keep in touch, and I hope to see you around. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.